You're listening to episode 387 of the UAV Digest. I'm Max Flight. And I'm David Vanderhoof. Hey, Max, how are we? Good, David. This should be the last podcast episode recorded in the shadow of the cell tower sitting in my car because tomorrow we're supposed to get cable into my mother's house, which is where I've been spending a lot of time lately. And that means high-speed internet and life will be good. Yay! I know. Yeah, yes. Uh, the years that we've put up with you t- filming in, in, and recording in your car, the devotion you have to podcasting um, is a bit obscene, but we're very happy that you do it. But Max, we got a lot of stuff to talk about before your Wi-Fi goes away. And that's the Navy and Marines are testing supply drones. Not to be left out, the Army is also testing UASs. Construction sites also. Drone support for hypersonic missile testing. Weaponized drones. Another contraband carrying drone. Drone video evidence in high-profile criminal case. And personal e-vertals. So what do you think? Should we get started? It's a lot of stuff to cover, David. Let's get started. Well, our first story is from the DefensePost.com, U.S. Navy trials logistic drones for sea land missions. UAS are being tested for the frontline warfighter resupply. Trials were held by the Navy and the Marine Corps Tactical Unmanned Aircraft Systems Program Office at the Naval Air Warfare Center Division, or NAWCAD, located at Patuxent River in Maryland, around the corner from you. Is it really? I didn't realize I was so close. Amazing. So they're looking at some autonomous aircraft here. Two of them, actually. The, do you say that TRUAS? That doesn't sound right. The T-R-U-A-S, the Tactical Resupply Unmanned Aircraft System is the first one. It's a marine-focused UAS, and the idea is for onshore tactical resupply it has a capacity of up to 150 pounds, so this is a um, this is a pretty good sized cargo craft. Yeah, and the trial was um, when they say onshore tactical resupply. What they're talking about is from an amphibious assault group sending the aircraft to the Marines ashore from the ships. The trial flight was to a predetermined location. They airdropped the cargo, and the aircraft then returned. The second test was a trial flight to a predetermined location, land, release the cargo, and return. That was the Marines testing, but the Navy's got um, also autonomous resupply on their mind. This was the Blue Water Logistics UAS, BWUAS, which has longer range but lower payload capacity, around 30 to 50 pounds, they say. And they ran a trial of that as well, vertical takeoff, forward flight, return for an airdrop, more forward flight, and then a vertical land. So uh, we have these two, these two aircraft. They say that next summer the Marines will receive the TRUAS for extended user assessment. Which follows their pattern before because it was the Marines that were using the KMAX. UAS for an extended trial user agreement. Um, the Navy will, the um, 
NAWC AD um, will assign a developer to prototype the Blue Water UAS technology and demonstrate feasibility of autonomous tactical resupply at sea, right? So carrier onboard delivery and vertical rep- replenishment will be falling to CMV-22Bs, which is the Osprey, um, but they're looking for other resupply vehicles to replace their logistics stuff. Um, So this will be interesting. Replenishment at sea is a big deal. It's how your carriers stay out and the ships stay out. Um, So any way to facilitate quicker resupply is a good thing. And David, I don't see any reasons why this won't be entirely successful. I mean, I can't see any any roadblocks in this. This seems like something that, well, not only would be very valuable and uh, should be pursued, but something that ought to work out pretty well, pretty easily. Well, yeah, until somebody drops a 2,000-pound payload overboard. Um, then, then we'll see what happens. 150 pounds is a sizable payload. But I guess my concerns about vertical replenishment is um, you normally do that currently with an SH-60 or an MH-60, or previously it was done by um, CH-47s. And they are fairly long-endurance helicopters where they could go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. One wonders what the battery life is on these UAS, or are they going to be petrol or fuel driven um, to provide that replenishment, that back and forth over time instead of doing one run successfully is amazing. But for especially for um, replenishment at sea, normally you've got multiple trips back and forth. So we'll we'll see. The endurance will have to be an issue, but, and again, that always boils down to batteries. So the Army. The Army, not to be outdone by the Navy and the Marines, and this was from Task and Purpose, Army researchers are working with near-Earth autonomy and L3 Harris technologies to develop an autonomous unmanned aircraft that can deliver blood to the battlefield, which is interesting because it's the military following what's already been done in Africa about delivering blood. And they've conducted a demonstration flight uh, in Fort Pickett, Virginia. Now, this is an eVTOL drone. It can fly over the landing zone. And then it gets kind of interesting because this aircraft can scan the landing zone for a suitable place to touch down and land. But if the landing zone has obstacles in it, vehicles, other things that prevent a safe landing, then the drone can identify those and can either uh, release the package from a hover or release transport pods that have parachutes. So it has some intelligence in terms of assessing the landing zone. Which is a very realistic environment for a UAV delivering medical supplies to a combat zone. You're not going to get smooth helipads in the middle of a combat zone. So interesting that the choice would be land first because that protects the packages. But depending upon the the mission, the variable things help. Um, The L3 Harris FVR-90 drone can fly 12 to 18 hours 
can carry up to 22 pounds of payload in its nose, and sensors help determine where it lands. So for for blood, 22 pounds of payload, that's that's a substantial amount of blood to be delivered to the front lines. And the 18 to 12 hour, 22 hour endurance is pretty hefty also. So it sounds like the uh, the hardware, the aircraft is coming from L3 Harris. And that, as you said, David, the FVR-90 drone and perhaps control software from Near-Earth Autonomy. Now, Near-Earth Autonomy is a startup uh, that was uh, established by a number of primarily folks from Carnegie Mellon University, which, of course, has a very strong robotics, AI capability. So uh, a bunch of folks from Carnegie Mellon and combining their skills with the L3 Harris folks makes for a pretty pretty potent package, I think. Exactly. Um, and... It- I believe that, I mean, the technology that they're implementing here where the determined safe landing practices, I think that will quickly move out into the general area because that's always been a topic, Max, we've talked about for safe package delivery was picking a landing zone, how do you deliver it? And, and this sounds like it's the perfect package delivery software program. It does. Very impressive. But let's not leave out the civilians. Drones are becoming even more common on construction sites. This is from the dailyreporter.com. The article provides some background information on drones, definitions, registrations, identifications, commercial use, and prohibitions. However, Max, you had some problems with this article. Yeah, I'm reading through this article, and as you said, it starts off with a lot of background information kind of encapsulating what the drone industry has been all about for these years. But I started to see some, I don't know, inaccuracies in the article, some things that just didn't didn't seem right. And before I even got to the part on, on construction sites, I decided to scroll down and see if there were any comments on this and if other people were thinking the same way I was, there was just one comment, and it was from a John Elliott. And he starts off, he says, there is a heavy amount of inaccuracy in the article, a lot of it being out-of-date info. And he went on to describe the inaccuracies that, uh, uh, that he finds, and I agree. The article talks about night flying with drones not being um, permissible, but that's changed. There's some regulatory changes made that address that. There's the issue of FAA jurisdiction over aircraft, uh, a number of different things as well. But my curiosity was piqued, so I decided to find out who John Elliott was. And apparently he's from MKE Drones, which is a Milwaukee business, an aerial service provider. They provide drone imaging and that sort of thing. So this was the first time, David, I've seen a comment that just made a whole lot of sense and, you know, took the took the author of the article to task. And I'll be honest, I never got to the part about the construction industry. Sometimes you need to just read the article and read the comments and check it off, too. It happens. So let's talk about InsideUnmannedSystems.com's Sky Range, Faster, Cheaper, and Better. 
The military is trying something different for testing hypersonic missiles. Good old North Dakota, the coldest hot spot for drones in North America. So we have now something called the Sky Range, which is a test range in the air in North Dakota. It's about testing hypersonic missiles. So you might think, well, where do the drones come in? In order to test a hypersonic vehicle, uh, you have to get it up to speed. Typically, they're carried on board another aircraft, like a B-52, to get up to altitude and speed, which then drops the hypersonic test vehicle and off it launches. So the idea here is at this sky range, this North Dakota test range, that drones with sensors can be positioned in this range. And as the hypersonic test vehicle flies by, the sensors on the drones can record the test data. Now, there's some advantages to this. One is that the sensors, since they're in the air this way, they can record from horizon to horizon. But also, with the sensors being in close, in relative close proximity to the hypersonic test vehicle, you eliminate any issues associated with human risk. Pretty clever. And these drones that they're building for this purpose are called range hawks. And what are they based on? The old technology of global hawks. Um, they'll be retired global hawks. They're actually 20 global hawk block 30s, which they will convert over. And the Department of Defense Test Resource Management Center modifies them. So North Dakota's Grand Sai UAS-focused business park, which is co-located on Grand Forks Air Force Base, will fly these aircraft now, remember, the Global Hawk is a large aircraft, about the size of a DC-9, and is a high-altitude, long-endurance aircraft. But they also are going to follow up with smaller aircraft by using MQ-9 range reapers also. So it's ironic, Max, that you know we take jet fighters and convert them to drones for experimentation. Now we're taking drones and converting them into sensor platforms for experimentation. So nothing ever goes to waste in the military. At least a lot of stuff doesn't go to waste. And these are aircraft that just would have been retired and gone out to the boneyard, I guess, somewhere. So it's nice that they're being repurposed uh, in this way. They get a new life, and then we get some improved testing process for hypersonic test vehicles. Um, the article mentions that uh, one of the advantages of this sky range is that an alternative is sometimes flight over the ocean. But using the ocean as a test range, it, you know, it doesn't, well, it has some issues. One is that you have to position ships along the way in order to conduct the test. And it takes time and expense to position the ships. The other thing is that you're clearly signaling to any adversaries what's going on, or at least they know that something's going on there and they can follow along. Uh, with this sky range in North Dakota, they can conduct tests in rapid succession uh, without all of the sort of the logistics issues of some other, uh, other test ranges. So, yeah, it works out pretty well, and it ought to uh, speed up the testing of uh, hypersonic vehicles. From Newsy.com, we have weaponized drones are likely coming to the U.S. And we're talking not about military drones, but we're talking about drones that are used for terrorist activities. And we've seen some of that recently. Uh, 
there were three drones carrying explosives that attempted to assassinate the prime minister of Iraq. And we know that drones have been used on U.S. forces in Syria as well. But I guess it's no surprise that uh, we may see terrorist activity using drones in the U.S., whether that be domestic terrorism or foreign terrorism. It's likely to come. And remember that we talked about this two weeks ago where the the, um, U.S. government announced that there was a drone that was trying to shut down the nuclear power grid, a power grid using a, a quadcopter. That's right, in Pennsylvania. So, I mean, it's an interesting article. It's something to think about. You know, the bad guys use technology like the good guys. So we'll have to keep going with that. But let's talk about smuggling contraband, you know, talking about the bad guys using drones for other reasons. This comes from CountOn2.com. Drones and catapults used to smuggle contraband into South Carolina prisons. And it's, I guess it's happened again. Uh, people think that this might be a good way to get contraband into a prison. And the South Carolina Department of Corrections reported that a drone and a catapult, low-tech, huh, a catapult, were recently used to uh, smuggle some contraband into prisons. I have to admit it wasn't the drone that caught my attention with this article. I find the catapult story um just kind of amusing that you sort of, you know, have a ballista um, firing smartphones into a into a prison. I just find very humorous the thought of that, but probably not really funny. But you know, you know where the um, maybe the best technology for catapults comes from these days is. Uh, have you ever been to a pumpkin chunking? Uh, I think that's in Delaware, David. Maybe it moves around. It's in Lower Slower Delaware, and yes. It, that's what they that's what they call it. So again on the Delmarva Peninsula. So yes, you can go watch people use all sorts of catapults or compressed air guns to hurdle pumpkins close to a mile. Though I haven't no I don't know if they've done it recently. I know that for, for there was some injuries occurred and um so I'm not sure Discovery used to have an episode every year about pumpkin chunking. So in this case, they're not tossing pumpkins into uh, into prisons. They're sending smartphones, things like tobacco, marijuana, other things like that. But in this particular case in South Carolina, the items were confiscated by corrections officers. And I don't know if they if they um, identified the catapult operator, but as far as the drone operator, uh, that guy hasn't been identified. So. The next story is not a comment about the case, but it is kind of something that we need to mention because it was kind of interesting. And that is the Kyle Rittenhouse defense asked for a mistrial over drone video evidence. This is kind of surprising. And I think that's the first kind of thing that we've occurred since we've been doing this podcast. For folks who may not be um, familiar with this particular case, this is a, a, a trial about an individual who shot and killed several people at a demonstration and riot. And as you said, David, we're not going to get into the case because that's not kind of the the big piece of this. But the prosecution obtained some drone video of this incident and provided a copy to the defense. And this was done after the evidence window was closed. 
and it was determined by that the prosecution provided a low-resolution ver- version of the video to the defense. This is really kind of interesting, Max, the, the legal aspects that we haven't come across yet as far as drone video footage in use in cases. You know, um, Now, I'm not sure who the idiot was that was flying a drone over a uh, race riot in w- Kenosha, Wisconsin, but... Um, I'm sure I'm wondering if the FAA is going to follow up with this person who turned in the video unexpectedly to the prosecution. There are a couple of issues here, but that's one of them. David, can you use uh, essentially illegally, presumably obtained evidence, you know, in a court case? And the other there was some I don't know if it was confusion, but. The, the video that the defense received was low resolution. And I guess it was difficult to see uh, as clearly as you can see what happened in the original high resolution version. But it seems like somebody maybe emailed the file and it was like too big to email. So they ended up with a small compressed version. But it is interesting that a couple of uh, issues that really could determine the outcome of this case are related to a video taken by a drone. It'll be interesting to come, see what comes out of it. Maybe nothing, but it, it's it's definitely a new frontier for video footage as far as drone shot video footage. I think this is the first time, in my opinion, that we've seen a high-profile case possibly hinge on drone video footage. But let's move on to other things like eVertol, which is much happier thoughts. So, personal eVertol vehicles, Air CEO believes in the flying cars of the future. So, Max, do we have, have we been have we bought the Kool Aid yet about eVertol? Um, that's the open question. I think Air A I R is a Tel Aviv based company, and they've recently released their first product offering, the Air One, which is a two seat. EV tall. It's designed for recreation and short commutes. It's not designed to be a commercial air taxi kind of a vehicle. Uh, it's powered by a 60 kilowatt hour lithium ion battery, has a range up to 110 miles, speeds up to 155 miles per hour. But as I said, the idea is not to provide an air taxi or commercial UAM kind of an aircraft because the co-founder, Rainy Plout, says that we think the serious movement of this market will start at the individual level. And he believes that UAM, made up of commercial eVTOL vehicles like air taxis, has some significant challenges, certification challenges and regulatory challenges that are going to cause this to move very slowly. So instead, he's kind of taken more of the Jetsons approach. Yeah, which is kind of funny because, you know, I look out my office window every day and I see a Kitty Hawk Flyer, which was an Evertal personal aircraft. But he thinks that they use techni- techniques, technologies, and processes and materials from the automotive industry and m- migrating those to aerospace in order to enable mass production on a very large scale. Um, that was already done. 
it was called the B-24 line, and Henry Ford created it that was using automotive techniques to make airspace aircraft. So he's a little behind the times. That was World War II. Well, he also goes on to say that what he's trying to create here is something says that resembles a car in terms of model and ownership, the ease of use and so forth. So I, this is the first time I've seen any company view uh, urban air mobility and uh, EV tall use in this different light. Everyone else that I'm aware of has viewed it as a commercial enterprise where you know companies, organizations will uh, purchase these kinds of aircraft and then sell rides on them or provide that kind of uh, that kind of service. And here, this company is saying, you know, personal ownership is the way to get this thing launched and going. And I think it's a, you know, it, it's an interesting perspective. I'm not sure what the the leading approach is in terms of how do you get this actually established and get the industry rolling and get these kinds of aircraft actually in use. But it's, inter it's interesting to think about it from this different perspective. Well, yeah, cars became taxis, you know, not taxis became cars. So, I, I mean, if you're, if you're going to follow that, that model, then it, yes, the car comes first, the taxi comes later. So it, it, it's an interesting thought pattern. Um, we'll have to keep an eye on them. You know, I mean, Tel Aviv and Israel tends to lead the world in UASs and in this kind of technology. So, again, it boils down to a lot of this boils down to infrastructure and lack thereof. So we'll have to keep an eye on that also. I guess, Max, with that, we should probably wrap this up and tell everybody that we will be deliberately taking off next weekend because here in the United States, it will be Thanksgiving and we will be spending Thursday with our families. And so we will return the following week, I promise. So with that, I'm going to say thank you for listening. This is David. And this is Max. And you can follow us on Twitter, on Facebook, on LinkedIn, if you can spell flight or and or Vanderhoof. And, of course, you can join our Slack listener team by sending us an email to feedback at the uavdigest.com, and we'll send you an inv invite to the Slack listener team. So if you're in the United States, happy Thanksgiving. We'll see you in two weeks. Bye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>